And as you're turning there, I just want to just say I hope that you had a, a wonderful Christmas with family, and I also want to express my hope that you got everything that you were looking for under the tree. I know, though, that's not always the case. Uh, we always come to Christmas with all kinds of hopes, and we're hoping that they'll get us what we want, and it's always, or sometimes it's not there. Uh, you could ask Abby about that. Um, and uh, while she could tell her, she might tell you I did better this year than other years. Uh, I hope that's what she would say. <laughs> but uh, someone once said that holidays in general breed unrealistic expectations. The moment you start wondering, is it going to be wonderful enough, it will never be. As soon as you start thinking, ah, and then it's crashed, it's over. But that might sound awfully, awfully pessimistic, but if we do put our hope in something that cannot deliver, we're going to be disappointed every single time. I know most of us at certain points have been duped by unrealistic expectations, but the difficulty and the troublesome thing about unrealistic expectations is that they destroy the hearts of many people. And one of the greatest threats to the gospel today is unrealistic expectations proposed by preachers. In fact, the distortion is so great that this preaching could truly be called a false gospel. Let's see if you can think, maybe you can guess the author of these three quotes. Don't just accept wherever, whatever comes your way in life. You were born to win. You were born for greatness. You were created to be a champion in life. Second quote, choosing to be positive and having a grateful attitude is going to determine how you're going to live your life. Here's another one. Why don't you start believing that no matter what you have or haven't done, that your best days are still out in front of you? Now, if you had said Oprah Winfrey, you might have been right. But these were spoken by Joel Osteen, pastor of... Uh, North, uh, excuse me, of Lakewood Church in Houston, Texas. He's uh, co-pastor with his wife, Victoria, there. And uh, it's purported to be one of the largest churches in America. It has 52,000 people who go in on a Sunday weekend uh, or week there at that, at that church. In fact, uh, they boast a, 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 a dialed-in or a tuned-in uh, audience of about 7 million people worldwide. In fact, I've met a few people in Honesdale that consider Joel their pastor, probably about a dozen people. So it's not something that's like just, you know, maybe over there. It's, it's everywhere. And, uh, but uh, the trouble is the teaching of Jesus and the teaching of Joel, they don't go together. Jesus said, if the world hates you, Know that it is hated before me, before it has hated you. Remember that the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. The apostles also taught us that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Acts 14.22. Philippians 1.29, Paul said, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. The problem is, is that if your expectations about the Christian life are out of line with reality, 
then you're going to wither away when the heat comes. Peter says here in chapter 4, verse 12, and I want us to think critically about this first verse because it sets up the rest of this little paragraph to encourage us to be able to stay strong in the midst of suffering and persecution. Peter says, beloved, do not be surprised in verse 12. Instead of surprise, you're supposed to expect difficulty. You're supposed to anticipate it, expect it to be there in your life, but don't despair. He says, you're beloved. You're beloved. And if Jesus Christ is your redeemer, he's going to hold you fast no matter what is going to come into your life that he has foreordained. His love will not let you go. John MacArthur said of this word beloved, he said, beloved is a common pastoral word conveying tenderness, compassion, affection, and care. Such love provides a sweet pillow for believers' weary souls to rest on in the midst of trials and persecutions. And when we hear the word beloved, it does invite us in, doesn't it? It encourages us to to come and not to run. And that's the truth. Jesus is who we turn to. And so he says, beloved, do not be surprised. But then he goes on, he says, at the fiery trials. Do not be surprised at the fiery trials. The word fiery trial is, is the word, particularly the word fiery is used in context of, of smelting and melting down of the furnace preparation of, of trying to ex- remove the, the impurities. We were, we're now kind of nearing the conclusion of, of Peter's letter here, and, and at the beginning he had told us initially some of his purposes for writing, and you could just flip back to chapter 1 with me and look at verse 6, chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, and follow along as he said, "'In this you rejoice, though now for a little while.'" If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So he says, look, beloved, do not be surprised when fiery trials, when it comes, when it comes upon you to test you. Verse 12 continues on, back in chapter 4. Suffering for righteousness' sake not only refines, but it also, even before that, it reveals whether or not you are a believer or not. Many people trust Christ on a very superficial level. They trust Christ and they believe in Him on a superficial level. They don't, they don't really let it go down deep within their heart. And like the parable of the seed on the soil, when it reaches that rock underneath, it withers away when the heat comes. They have a superficial fake profession. And so there is a a necessary testing of our faith that we will experience in the Christian life. Well, book back there at verse 12, he goes on, he says, well, he says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trials which come upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, were happening to you, 
literally means to like kind of fall by chance. As if like this, this happened and God didn't know what was going on. Now, God knows what's going on. In fact, he has put this before you to test you to allow the genuineness of your faith to appear. God allows all that befalls us. Back in Matthew chapter 10, verse 29 and 31, Jesus said, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Fear not. Therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. I think someone very cleverly put this few verses into kind of like a poem. Some people like these things. Said the robin to the sparrow, there is one thing I would really like to know. Why these anxious human beings rush about and worry so? Said the sparrow to the robin, friend, I think it may be that they have no heavenly father such as cares for you and me. And so often we forget that we have a heavenly father who allows these things into our life to test us, to refine us, to make us stronger for his grace and his glory. And so the idea here in this verse, verse 12, the basic idea here is that we ought to expect Christian living to be difficult, but yet doable with Christ. It is completely doable with Christ. But lest you think you are on your own, don't think that you are on your own lest you fall. Don't let pride exalt in your heart. Rather, exalt in Jesus Christ. And so, this morning, when difficulty and suffering comes, we need to be doing three specific things that Peter tells us in this verse, in these verses. And the first is, we need to exalt that we share in Christ's suffering. Verse 13 and 14 speak to us about the importance of exalting that we share in Christ's suffering. Peter says twice in these verses that we're to rejoice, and then he adds in another word, he says that we're to be glad. Look at verse 13. He says, but rejoice insofar as you share the sufferings of Christ, that you may also rejoice, and then be glad when His glory is revealed. We don't use the word exalt very much. In fact, uh, I showed Bonnie this word in the office this week, and she was like, what does exalt mean? Like, what is this word? And well, I had to look it up too, but I think it fits this, this idea here very well. We are to, we are to elate. We are to um, be raptured, if you will. We're to be overjoyed. We're to be jubilant that we have the opportunity to share in Christ's suffering because it reveals who we belong to. It reveals that we are children of the Most High. Jesus said that if they persecute you, know first that they have persecuted me. They're going to persecute you. And Peter is writing to a group of believers that are about to go through some intense suffering. In fact, it's very well known that in Rome in 64 AD, for nine days there was a huge fire that swept through the city of Rome. And a lot of the, the Roman streets were set up with, with 
with mud and clay buildings, but in the main thrust, thrust of the, the street, there were all these wooden tenements. Nero wanted to have it all cleaned out so that he could refurbish Rome. It had become, it had become uh, chaotic and, desert, and just unattractive. In fact, uh, Roman troops prevented people from trying to put out the fires that he had started. And the disaster was was so thorough, it totally demoralized the people. And he blamed it upon Christians. Christianity became a scapegoat for the fire. Christians were, became human torches at the garden parties of Nero. They were crucified. They were subjected to many heinous tortures. In fact, some of them were put inside of sewn uh, skins of animals, and they were thrust into the the arena to be devoured by by lions and and, and, and other animals. And we're not tortured like that here in America, are we? But how often are we the butts of ridicule? How often are we looked at askance when we say that we are a follower of Christ? I was recently at a board gaming activity at the Cooperage here in town, and uh, when I was asked what I do for a living, I said I was a pastor. I was met with a cold cordiality. But that's what I'm called to do. I, I was even out this week, and I noticed another pastoral type in the community. He didn't even have to actually say what he did. It was worn around his neck. He doesn't actually have to say anything to anyone. People already can see it. Maybe they take a wide girth around him. I don't know. But the truth is, if we are going to be in our community and to be known as followers of Jesus Christ, we have got to expect that we will be the object of ridicule. I mean, we, it may be that it's socially prudent not to speak about politics and religion in public, and that may be true, but it could be that we are denying the Lord Jesus Christ when there is obvious hope within us that we can share. I'm not talking about being obnoxious. I'm just talking about being gracious testimonies of who we put our hope in. As I was, you know, thinking about this whole moment, I was thinking about myself and my own vocation as a pastor, how important it is for me to be in community as well. I can't just expect you all to be the objects of ridicule, I have to be out there and be object of ridicule as well. I can't spend all of my time sipping tea with the saints. I have to be out there in the community just as much as you're in the community. And I might need space to be able to do so as well. Second Timothy 4, 5 says that, it says that the, Paul's writing to Timothy, who is a pastor, says, you know, endure suffering but do the work of an evangelist. I can't expect you all to be evangelists without me being an evangelist. I need to be out now active as well. Well, in this 
two verses in which we're to exalt that we share in Christ's suffering, there are promises here that are embedded within it. And it's important for us to see them. The first promise, and I'm not going to dwell overly long on each of these promises, but it's important for us to see them. First, that we are not alone in our suffering. He says you're sharing in Christ's suffering, and He's with you. He's with you. You're not alone. Now, there's no redemptive meaning here, but it refers to a believer experiencing the same kinds of suffering Christ endured. I mean, Jesus stood before Pilate, And Pilate asked him, what is truth? And Pilate ridiculed him. Jesus was nailed to the cross. And if you stand for the truth, you will be nailed to the cross with Jesus. I'm not talking literally. I'm talking, you might be literally nailed to the cross, but you may feel like you're nailed to a cross, but Christ will be there with you because you're standing with him for the truth. Second promise that's in here is that you will preserve. Verse 13, you will will be preserved. You will persevere, excuse me. You'll persevere. You will get through it. Notice uh, that he says that you may also be able to rejoice when his glory is revealed. He says when. It's not a matter of if, but when. You will persevere through this as long as you're putting your faith and confidence in Christ. You will not fall. The third promise that's in here is that you will triumph. Verse 13, again, he's talking about when his glory is revealed in verse 13. There is an aspect here that this is different than perseverance. It's not just persevering by the skin of your teeth. You're actually, when the glory of God appears, there's reveling, there's like rejoicing that's going on. It's like you're winning with a high hand. It's like you're on, I I don't watch a lot of football, but I see some of the guys who like celebrate in the end zone. You are going to be celebrating in the end zone when the glory of God appears. You're not just persevering by the skin of your teeth. You're going to triumph. And fourth promise here is you're blessed. You are blessed. Verse 14, uh, explicitly he says this, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. You're blessed now. See, we sin and so much, and we, you know, when we, we refuse to follow Christ, we... We are dissatisfied and we, we feel this emptiness and this state of, of unhappiness. But if we endure, we will receive such joy in our endurance, there'll be a blessing there that's incomprehensible to the person next to you. Think about dissatisfaction and you think about people being dissatisfied and why people walk away from Christ. They do not endure, they do not persevere. It's a lot of dissatisfaction in life, isn't there? We're looking for things. We're looking for things that are going to bring us satisfaction. I mean, think about why is it that people cheat on their spouses or they use substances? They binge on television programming, on 
end. They scroll aimlessly through Facebook for hours on end. What are we looking for? We're looking for happiness now. We're looking for blessing, right? But at the root is dissatisfaction. And that dissatisfaction is a never-ending thirst. And so we think that a better job will get us what we need. We think that maybe it's more money or cooler friends or a new life is what we need. No, listen to what Jesus, what is ours through Jesus Christ, the blessing. In verse 14, he says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Why are we blessed right now? Because the Holy Spirit is in our hearts. It's the same Holy Spirit who descended upon the disciples. He now dwells within your hearts. But be careful. Don't be immature in your thoughts. It's not like, you know, he's there to provide miracles for you, per se. The Holy Spirit there is to bless you with the ability to be like Jesus. To be completely content with all that transpires in your life, even the hard things. To give you character of Christ. To give you the understanding of the holiness of God. And to give you the fruit of peace and the contentment. That's real blessing. That's real peace. I won't forget the conversation that I had with with Debbie Skinner. Debbie was in pain for many, many weeks and months. And my last few visits with her were dwindling, running out of time. And she, she looked into my eyes and she, she quoted John 14, 27. She said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. And we said those words together. That's peace. That is something, that is blessing that this world cannot fully ever know. And it's ours. Because we have the Holy Spirit living and comforting us. We have the same Spirit of Christ. Well, that's the first thing that we ought to be doing. We ought to be exulting in what we have and the opportunity to share in the, the sufferings of Christ. The second thing that we ought to do that Peter's encouraging us to do is we need to evaluate what might be the cause of our suffering. What might be the cause of our suffering? In verse 15 through 18, he's, he's working through this with us. And there's essentially three questions that as I was studying this came out through it that I think is important for us to, to ask ourselves. The first is, are you suffering because of your own doing? Verse 15, and then there's a recap in 17 to 18, but look at with me in verse 15. And I think, unfortunately, we attribute a lot of our sufferings to righteousness snake when sometimes it's our own fault. Verse 15, he says, but let none of you suffer as a murderer... Check. A thief? Check. 
An evildoer? Check. Or a meddler? Wait a second. What in the world is that doing there? I mean, like, what exactly is that doing in there in that list? Which one of these things does not belong? Literally, it's a busybody, a troublesome meddler. I mean, you look at that, and it seems very fine compared to the first few, right? But a person who meddles is an agitator, a troublemaker. They're slanderer, they're manipulators, they're gossips. And in the life of the church, that's a pretty serious thing. In fact, it's mentioned throughout Scripture many times in 1 Thessalonians 4.11. Paul says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Attend your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you. And to the women in Crete, Paul instructs Titus, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train younger women to have their husbands and children to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. And so in this list, he throws in something that's very common. And he's saying, look, if you're suffering for something that you have done, be realistic about what you have done. If you become known as a person who continually meddles in the business of others and stirs up strife in church or slanders your brother or sister in Christ, you cannot complain when you're ostracized. People don't want to be around you. That's not suffering for righteousness' sake. That's just suffering for foolishness' sake. Look down at verses 17 to 18 for a minute. He says, For it is time for judgment to begin in the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? It might be surprising to us to realize that God's judgment starts with his own people. I mean, this is, this is a difficult truth of the gospel. I mean, we would much rather have God to be our father than for God to be a judge too, right? In fact, there's a lot of twisted theology that results out of that. But the truth is, the God of the gospel of Jesus Christ is both father and a judge. I came across this quote from Sinclair Ferguson, and I shared it on an evening service as we were studying through the the Sermon on the Mount, but I'm going to share it with you this morning. Sinclair Ferguson says this, the terrible thing for unbelievers is that in rejecting God's judgment on his life, the unbeliever also rejects the privilege of having him as his father. And in rejecting God's fatherly grace, the unbeliever encounters him as a judge. But for the believer, the knowledge that God is father transforms his view of him as judge. And the knowledge that he is judge fills him with awe that such a God is also his father. See, God is going to put us through the fire to remove impurities, 
And He's going to do that because He loves us and He wants us to have those purities removed from our life. There are times where we have to look into our own hearts and do the work of examination ourselves. And we may consider our hearts to be, you know, basically good, but if we dig deeper, we realize that there's a lot of filth underneath there. But by God's grace, He is faithful to forgive us if we confess our sins. It's a painful thing to do, though. Very painful. But if we refuse to repent when the Spirit convicts, God may remove us out of His church. That's fire. And when the fire comes, it's painful for all of God's people. It's painful. It affects more than just individuals. It affects a whole community. How in the world could that be beneficial? It is infinitely better for God's people to endure the suffering now so that a more effective testimony may be available to the community at large. Pruning may draw a person to realize that perhaps they're not believers at all. And then they cast themselves at his feet. God is holy, but he is also merciful. And for the church itself, this purifying effect creates a healthier body. We have to ask ourselves, are we suffering for our own foolishness? Something that we have done. A second question here, and we pick up the pace a little bit quicker here. Are you suffering because you follow Christ? Verse 16. And if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed but let him glorify God in that name. See, suffering for our sins ought to bring us shame, right? And it brings dishonor to him who saved us. But we shouldn't be ashamed if we're suffering ridicule in a community for for following Jesus Christ. In fact, we should glory in it. But there's also a side piece here. Do you realize that when you Repent of sin. Every time you repent of sin, you're suffering for Christ. Because with every sin of which you repent, you are taking a step away from the world. And it's painful. And when you repent of sin, you are taking a step away from the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, the lust of the flesh. You're leaving a world that you used to love. And that's painful. And when you refuse to gossip, refuse to meddle, refuse to tell a tale, you're going to lose friends. And you're going to experience loss from that. But you don't have to be ashamed of it. You're stepping into the light and the glory of Christ. Third question that we have to ask, too, in the midst of suffering is kind of embedded in this train of thinking as well, is are you suffering for reasons you cannot explain? The reality is there are times when we do suffer for things which we don't really understand why. And that was the whole premise of the life of Job, wasn't it? 
He suffered as a righteous man. He lost all of his family. He lost all of his wealth. He longed for the opportunity to ask God questions. But when God came to ask him questions, Job didn't get the answers he was looking for. God asked Job about the geology of the earth. He asked him about all these animals and like, was he there when he created the ostrich and the lions and things that seem so random to us, right? Like, no, like, I- I'm suffering. And you're talking to me, God, about, like, zoology? Why is God doing that? It was to show Job that if God is going to be God, then there will be good reasons which his creatures may not ever fully understand. And you know what? Peter is the only exclusive user of the word creator in verse 19 that points us in this direction. God is the creator of everything. If God has to explain everything to everyone, then he is no longer God. But he is good, and he is trustworthy. And so this kind of brings us that third question, brings us to the third thing that we ought to be doing in verse 19. We need to entrust ourselves to the just providence of God while doing good. Verse 19, he says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will, that is because he has arranged it, he has orchestrated it, he has allowed it, to entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. The word entrust there carries with it the idea of putting something in a vault, of depositing it. This past uh, Monday, we were in Philadelphia, and we were in the area with family. So Tuesday, we decided we're this close. We're going to go see a few things in Philadelphia. And, uh, and while we were there, we, of course, we went to Liberty Bell, but we also went to see the Federal Reserve. That is worth the trip. <laughs> Believe it or not, the time at the Liberty Bell is like nothing. Like you walk in, you look at it, you go, the, the Federal Reserve was amazing. You get through the security. If you can get through the security, like it is amazing what's inside that building. In fact, the lady who greets us tells us that there, 30 feet below the ground, there are 12, there's $12 billion in cash. You think there was a lot of security there? Oh, and try to do that with five children. There's a lot of security. How much security surrounds you as a child of God? God sent his son to pay for you. And no matter what happens to you, you can entrust him as a good creator, as just but there are times when we as children, we're like children, we, 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 we need to trust, we can't understand why this situation has happened in my life. There's some things that are just too difficult for us to understand. I'm reminded of the story of Corey Ten Boom. It was before occupation in World War II, but when she was a young girl with her father, she was traveling with her father on a train, and there was a, a word that she had heard that stuck in her head, and it was kind of one of those words that in, like, 1900s, like, you don't say out loud, lest everyone blush. And uh, 
So she asked her father what this meant, and he turned and he looked at her. And then he got up and he took his luggage down and he set it down on the floor. And then he looked at his daughter and said, will you carry this bag that has all my equipment in it off the train for me, Corey? And so she stood up, she kind of tugged at it. Now it was so full of everything, it was like impossible for her to carry as a little girl. It was just too heavy. And that's what she said, Dad, it's too heavy. And he said, yes. And it would be a pretty poor father who would ask his little girl to carry such a load. It's the same way, Corey, with knowledge. So let me, so my knowledge is too heavy for children. Some, excuse me, some knowledge is too heavy for children. And when you're older and stronger, then you can bear it, but for now you must trust me that I can carry it for you. And that is so true. We may suffer with things and have unanswered questions because there are explanations that we are just simply unable to carry. But we have to trust our Heavenly Father while still doing good. That little phrase, still doing good, means that we don't quit. I mean, it, it's like the wisdom of that little fish on finding Nemo. Just keep swimming. Just keep swimming. And when we're in suffering, we've got to keep trusting. We've got to keep doing good. We've got to keep, you know, um, turning the other cheek. We've got to keep serving others. We've got to keep loving. Even if our children are driving us up the wall, we've got to be patient. Just recently, Abby had surgery to remove some varicose veins. And she gave me permission to say this. But leading up to the surgery, she was sitting in the office of the doctor, and the doctors, they got all the posters that are promoting all these surgeries and everything. And everything's like, this is an easy surgery. Like, uh, you'll be on your feet in 48 hours. You'll be like running on the beach with high heels. Maybe try six weeks. Wow. If they told everyone that it would take six weeks to get out of this, you know, get up and get back where you were, they wouldn't be making money. <laughs> the reality is, everyday life of a believer is not, it's not peaches and cream. And if we have expectations that are out of line then we're going to wither away when the heat comes. We need to expect that the Christian life will be doable with Christ. We need to exalt that we share in the sufferings of Christ. We need to evaluate whether maybe we're the, what the cause of the suffering might be. And we need to entrust ourselves to a just God while still doing good. And you expect that Christian life will be difficult, but it will be doable with Christ. I'm going to close with a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, just thank you that your grace is sufficient. And you tell us this in many places throughout the Scriptures. It's not just Peter talking to us here. 
It's the whole counsel of God. It's all of your truth. And as we anticipate your coming, Lord, help us to be faithful. Help us to be following you because we love you. Not because we have to, but because we want to. We delight in you. And so, Father, I pray that we would be looking and longing for your return, but that we would be entrusting our hearts to your just care. Our lives are everything. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.